2: So, like many moms, my mom loves avocados. What's going on, Ellie Cats? Not too much. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about avocados, <laughs> but until she was in her twenties, she never really tried one. Do you remember the first time you like had an avocado? Um, not really. I really didn't get
0: introduced to them until I moved to Texas.
2: Her move from Illinois to Texas happened at around the same time that the U.S. eased import restrictions on Mexico in the 90s. Needless to say, she fell hard. And avocados have been a pretty big part of our family's diet ever since. I remember when Eric and Matthew and I came home for Thanksgiving like a couple years ago. (laughs) And there was like, literally the only thing in the pantry was bread. And the only thing in the fridge (laughs)
3: was avocado. Oh, I don't slam that much avocado. Oh, I used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've switched on to soup now because it's nice and cold. But I do cut avocado into my tortilla soup. So what's this all about? Well, so,
2: (laughs) good question.
4: Today, we're exploring food in a globalized world. Nowadays, about 90% of our avocados come from Mexico. Mexico. And the beloved green fruit is just one example that illustrates our rapidly changing foodscape. According to the FDA, 32% of fresh vegetables, 55% of fresh fruit, and a whopping 94% of the seafood that we consume here in the U.S. is processed or caught internationally. We import and enjoy food from more than 200 countries and territories around the world, but as the world's population continues to grow and climate change looms, what does globalization mean for the future of food? We continue our miniseries on the future of food to consider the issues that remind us of just how big and small the world can seem. From labor to disease, from equity to our evolving taste buds, our palates and plates reflect an increasingly interconnected food system. How can we anticipate and plan for the changes to come? Time travel with us as we answer together on this blue floating rock. Where have we been, and where are we headed? I'm Hannah Forden, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides.
5: Food, news, and storytelling.
4: A square meal for your ears. Meat. And three. When it comes to food, deliciousness has an inverse sensation disgust. Some psychologists have hypothesized that our revulsion may actually be an adaptation to keep us from eating things that could make us sick. But this theory can't account for everything we find disgusting, it's also highly culturally regulated. The boiled offal that is Scottish haggis, for example, rarely sounds appetizing to the average American. With globalization, increased contact between cultures has also increased the unfamiliar foods we each come into contact with. What does this mean for the taste preferences of the individual of the future? Up next, Sarah Matha's endeavors to find out. Kodak, an
6: Icelandic fermented shark. grasshopper is marinated in chilies from Oaxaca, and the cured Chinese delicacy, the century egg. These are among the foods on display in the disgusting food museum in Sweden. But certainly these foods are not disgusting to the people who wrote the recipes. And if people somewhere have been eating them through the ages, clearly they can't be too dangerous to consume. So what's with this lack of consensus? Why don't we all turn our noses up at the same things? Studies have shown that our sense of disgust is not just piqued by smell or taste indicating real danger, but by negative associations that taint our experience of the whole food. One study conducted at the University of Pennsylvania asked participants to choose between glasses of juice. Only one had a dead sterilized cockroach dipped in it in front of the participants. Though they were assured that both glasses of juice were safe to drink, Nearly nobody chose to sip the juice a la roach. In the case of intercultural food experiences, instead of the cockroach, we graft our fears of the other onto the unfamiliar food and react with aversion. According to Professor Carla Savasco at Rutgers University, Europeans who encountered native peoples in North America in the 17th and 18th centuries used their disgust with native food ways to express their difference from the, quote, savage native populations. And to justify their colonization. Disgust could be the result of a food's unfamiliarity, but it may also be a technique for defamiliarizing other people. Matt Lecaque's menu at Bolero, a post colonial Vietnamese restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, directly confronts this colonial weaponization of disgust. Matt challenges diners to consume and respect the unfamiliar. In fact, they have something called the duck egg challenge. A whiskey-beer combo that comes with the fertilized duck egg, prized for its extraordinarily creamy yolk.
5: It's interesting because I get like five Vietnamese mothers coming in and just drinking coffee and ordering that and then leaving. And then I get a lot of uh, New Yorkers come in and they get excited to try it and challenge themselves to eat it. So it's nice to see that they're um, open-minded to it. But, you know, like, we have to be very specific. Hey, there's going to be a baby duck inside. It's kind of Russian roulette. You don't know how big this baby duck is going to be. It may be, like, the size of your, like, the tip of your thumb or, like, a full-grown, like, duck with wings and feathers and everything.
6: So far, Matt remembers only one customer making a stink about the duck egg. He wasn't prepared for the full baby duck and refused to pay at first. But most of his diners seem open to trying new things. That hasn't always been the case with Americans encountering the more pungent tastes and smells of Vietnamese cooking. The sauce Bolero uses on their Hanoi Skate Salad, for example, was once a weapon of war.
5: The sauce, to truly make it the way it should be, uh, you need to use uh, what's called a fermented anchovies sauce in it. It's called uh, mam uh, nem. It's even more pungent than fish sauce because when you extract fish sauce to make fish sauce, what's left is the murky bodies of the anchovies. And Vietnamese even use those murky bodies to make a sauce out of it. So in this dish, you mix this fermented anchovy sauce with pineapples, garlic, and uh, a couple other seasonings. But during the war, the Vietnam War, there's a folklore that says like, uh, when the American soldiers infiltrated the tunnels, uh, the Vietnamese would actually throw vats of this sauce into the tunnels, and the Americans could not stand the smell of it, and they would pop up and get captured. And to think of it like 50 years later, New Yorkers are coming into Bolero to enjoy the sauce on our Hanoi Skate Salad. is like a full circle of amazingness to me. It's a beautiful thing.
6: And it seems that there's some movement both ways. In Vietnam, Matt tells me the American burger is a huge thing. But this doesn't necessarily mean that global power imbalances haven't had an effect on what cuisines are considered seriously. Tastemakers like the Michelin Guide have remained pretty Eurocentric. As we push forward into a new era of exposure to foreign foodways through tourism, immigration, and internet platforms like TikTok, perhaps we can be more aware of the biases that motivate our disgust. Maybe we can move past just acceptance into appreciation and
4: respect. Although it's unclear how long it'll take us to start embracing new, unfamiliar favorites, there's one steadfast staple that's here to say. Poultry. When it comes to America's beloved bird, people have been dreaming of idealized food futures for a long time. Long enough for us to reconsider what the innovators of yesteryear actually got right. HRN's Isaac Furman contemplates the future of chickens by looking to the past.
7: There's this process that happens anytime you put a new salad on a menu, and it's happened in every kitchen I've ever worked in. You'll spend a month waiting on farmers to bring some vegetable to market, then weeks training some young kid how to slice a radish on a mandolin without taking his thumb off. You'll taste and season and retaste a vinaigrette until your gums feel scratchy from the lemon juice. And eventually, painstakingly, you'll have a beautifully composed salad, a pure expression of seasonality and thoughtfulness. It's a winner. Then, within hours of the first dinner, it happens.
8: A guest is asking if we can add chicken to the salad.
7: This episode is all about the future. And when I think about the future of chickens, I close my eyes and picture an endless refrigerated grocery case filled with shrink-wrapped, deboned, de-skinned, deflavored, bland, boring chicken breast.
2: Most consumers really love <laughs> this chicken. They do taste tests with pre factory farm chicken. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a bird that just sort of run around in the yard. The texture is 100% different. And you can argue, yes, it might have less chicken flavors, but most people eat chicken because it's a cheap easy protein that tastes like whatever sauce you put on it. And the texture of the factory farm bird is exactly what people like.
7: This might ruffle some feathers, but I'm not the biggest chicken fan. Neither is food historian Emmelyn Rude, which is surprising given that she's the author of Tastes Like Chicken, a history of America's favorite bird.
2: Um, so in the United States, there were chickens everywhere. Um, people always had them, but they rarely would eat chicken. There's sort of this trope pre-industrialized um, chicken of the chicken dinner on Sundays. is sort of like this fancy thing that you'd have once a week. Today,
7: the average American consumes almost 100 pounds of chicken per year. That's something like 25 birds per person. How we got to this point is a long story, but one of the key turning points happened just after World War II. Chicken consumption was on the rise, but the American public still wasn't falling for fowl just yet. Enter the Chicken of Tomorrow program. A three-year
9: program to breed
7: a
5: better chicken is now being carried on.
7: And
2: basically, they just wanted to have a, a more juicy, bigger, more efficient chicken.
7: The USDA promised $5,000 to the farmer or breeder who could produce America's juiciest chicken. The country's finest breeders, and a few prominent eugenicists, but that's a different story, Set out to create a superbird with succulent meat, a small appetite, and a penchant for rapid growth. A few years later, the Cornish White Plymouth crossbreed was born. But it's your pocketbook that profits most when you send this bird to market. So, 70 years ago, the nation set out to produce a product that could efficiently provide their burgeoning population with cheap protein. And they did. We got what we asked for.
2: And the other thing is that it is super cheap. It is profoundly affordable.
7: And yet, despite these technological successes, the modern chicken industry still has a host of issues. It's fair to say that if we were to hold a Chicken of Tomorrow contest in 2022, the demands would be less about taste and efficiency and more about things like labor rights, animal welfare, and climate change. And really, it's not like nobody's trying. California's new law mandating cage-free egg production just went into effect last month. And last year, over 200 multinational companies signed on to the Better Chicken Commitment, promising to raise the standards for farmers and animals alike. And if the last century has taught us anything, it's that the chicken will continue to evolve along with consumer demands. So what if we started demanding chickens that weren't bred to maximize profit, but to maximize decency? What would that future look like?
4: We'll be right back with more Meat and Three after a brief break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome
4: back to Meat and 3. Chickens aren't the only winged creatures of the future. In the wake of COVID-19, bats are having a moment. People are searching for something to blame for a pandemic that has turned our world upside down. And these critters are an easy target. This blame has resulted in a toxic culture of xenophobia, with many targeting entire identities, cultures, and continents as enablers of a virus whose origins have sparked a series of misinformation and conspiracy theories. The reality is, bats are all over. They often spread disease in ways difficult for humans to control. And humans' ever-increasing need for housing, land, and resources is forcing them to spread out. Chapin Montague speaks with Fred Kohan, a professor at Wesleyan University who researches the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases. To learn more about why bats are the starting point for so many of our present and future viruses, and how they can play a part in stopping them.
10: As we all know now, bats have very dangerous diseases. And in fact, they just have lots of diseases. It's not just the SARS-like viruses. And it's not completely understood. But as a result of their metabolism to be able to fly for sustained periods, It's thought that they have invested less energy, less of their resources into their immune system, and they become infected by more viruses than we do, and they've somehow come to a peace with these viruses.
8: As Professor Cohen just explained, bats have proven themselves to be resilient creatures. Humans and our domesticated animals, on the other hand, have not been as lucky. Warning, there's some major poop content
10: ahead. Animals, our domesticated animals, can serve as a conduit of new diseases that are not their diseases, but they become a conduit of bat diseases.
8: Let's start with the Nipah virus in Malaysia. Professor Cohen explained that this virus spreads through bats living on date palm plantations near piggeries. The bats would poop near the pigs, the pigs would inevitably eat the poop. You get the picture.
10: And Nipah virus, fortunately, uh, in most places has not become a really good human virus from the virus's point of view. The Nipah virus can be transmitted, but not in the way that I, I said it would have to to cause an epidemic, that it didn't transmit such that each person infects on average more than one other person.
8: Another example is the Hendra virus in Australia. In the context of this virus, at least, the bats themselves pose no threat to humans. But when the bats come into contact with a domesticated animal, the virus transforms.
10: Now, it turns out that in Australia where this happened, there are many, uh, mostly women, who were taking care of bats, injured bats, to rehabilitate them. They would be routinely scratched, bitten, and so on, and no one ever got Hendra virus directly from a bat. You would think they would if it could happen. So what happens? The Hendra virus is transmitted to horses and horses become like an amplifier of the virus. So a horse handler can see a horse and know from across the room that the horse is infected. They have a lot of foamy substance coming out of their mouth and nose. And if a horse handler should try to swab out the um, the mess from the horse, the human has a very good chance of contracting Hendra virus.
8: Bats and their poop are posing a threat to the human population. So why, you might ask, are there groups working to rehabilitate them? The answer is that yes, bats carry disease. But their pollination and insect-eating skills are crucial to maintaining our agriculture and wildlife. So when it comes to preventing the spread of disease without forcing bats into extinction, Professor Cohen points to an issue already at the forefront of many people's minds.
10: I think perhaps the most important human disturbance of the environment with regard to infectious diseases is deforestation that is cutting down wild virgin forests and making room for, uh, for human expansion, uh, human agricultural expansion, residential expansion, and so on. And what typically happens is that the bats will move from those forests, they will move into, into areas where we're inhabiting, maybe some hollowed out tree in some kid's backyard, and this can lead to a spillover of Ebola virus, and this is exactly what has happened many times in Central Africa and West Africa. Most of the Ebola outbreaks, which number in the dozens in Central and West Africa, most of these outbreaks have been in areas that have recently been disturbed, that have been deforested. and. Presumably, we don't know all the details in every case, but presumably what's happened is that the bats have come into close contact with people and have shed their Ebola virus on people.
8: While it's an admirable goal, ending deforestation isn't going to happen overnight. And given that we're currently deep in the midst of a multi-year pandemic, I asked Professor Cohen for some positive news regarding the future of zoonotic disease. The solution he points to also includes, you guessed it, bats.
10: We have learned from Chinese scientists and Americans and others, collaborations with Chinese scientists, that there are a lot of wild bat viruses uh, in bats that are very closely related to both SARS-1 and SARS-2. So on the one hand, you could say that's kind of a gloomy bit of knowledge because you would say, well, what's going to happen? There's surely going to be another outbreak if there's been two in 20 years. Why wouldn't there be another one? Well, the thing is, it has been such a useful thing to have those viruses in our freezers, and to know about them and to see how well various experimental vaccines will neutralize with antibodies the various bat viruses.
8: According to these studies, scientists have found that these experimental vaccines can provide protection against many of the SARS variants found in bats that have yet to reach humans in addition to all of the SARS-2 variants currently being transmitted through the human population.
10: So what I'd like to say out of all that is that even if we don't have the motivation, the political will to do what we need to stop environmental disturbances that bring us infectious diseases, I think we're in a better position now to control viruses that come into our population and plus we have a way to preempt some of these viruses from becoming pandemics. Certainly the SARS-like viruses, we're all over that. So,
8: all in all, bats are complicated creatures. They cause problems, but they can also be part of the solution and remain integral to our agricultural and environmental
4: systems. Some of the same forests that bats have fled from are home to other novel exports making their way around the world. One of these exports, the acai berry, hails from the rainforests of the tropical South and Central America. It is a major food source for the Amazon's indigenous people. And in the past few years, this fruit's popularity has exploded globally. But what is behind the acai bowl? Amanda Silva explores the roots of child labor, and acai extraction in Brazil. The Brazilian acai is exported most to the United States,
3: Europe, Australia, and Japan. The frozen berry is served as a smoothie in a bowl or glass. Refreshing and not too sweet, its creamy texture is appreciated even by picky eaters. But Brazilian reporter Leandro Barbosa discovered child labor is a pressing issue in the state of Pará. Where most of the Brazilian açaí is cultivated.
10: Arvore do açaí, ela tem tronco muito fino e flexível.
3: According to Leandro, the açaí palm tree is flexible, thin, and usually 60 feet tall. So a heavy person wouldn't be able to climb the tree and extract the berries, but a child would. It is actually a tradition among the kids that live around the Amazon River to climb these palm trees. Leandro says it's part of their culture. It's customary for kids to collect the berries for their families. However, he told me the families started being exploited by distributors in 2000, when acai stopped being original food and became accessible all over the country.
9: <inaudible> Reports
3: from UNICEF and the International Labor Organization show that COVID increased child labor in the past year. In 2020 alone, at least 160 million kids were forced to work worldwide. The Brazilian federal constitution prohibits child labor for individuals younger than 16. But in Pará, the children working as acai pickers are extremely poor, which is why they need whatever money they can get. I also spoke to Italian photojournalist Alessandro Falco, who is stationed in the state of Pará and covers Amazon issues. His work has been featured in publications like National Geographic and the New York Times.
9: I traveled to Abaite Tuba, one of Brazil's biggest producers of acai, for the Intercept magazine. And since the first few hours uh, driving a small boat around the huge highland complex in front of Abaite Tuba, we started already seeing small boats with mostly teenagers looking for acai palms full of precious berries. I ended up meeting and talking to half a dozen of children. They were aged between eight to 13. They basically helped their parents that are living in already desperate conditions. I think that it's important to say that those parents probably started working the same age, maybe even earlier, and that it's sure that they didn't add a proper access to school or in some cases, not education at all.
3: Poverty and lack of education are social issues that allow for such circumstances. As long as the government doesn't invest in public policies, child labor will continue to exist in the state of Pará.
9: They spend basically all their days doing this until they collect a few baskets of 28 kilos, and when they are full, they basically just leave them on the banks of the river and wait for an intermediate. This intermediate comes by boat. He will pay around 3 4 dollars per basket.
3: An acai bowl averages from 7 to $15 in the U.S. These children are paid 3 to $4 for 45 pounds of acai. According to Locos, these intermediate people are individuals from the community. They are the ones that most profit in the process because they make their fortune buying the açaí baskets cheap and selling them to exporters in the capital, who often don't know how the product was collected. They send the açaí to many countries, but the United States receives the highest number, more than 1,000 tons per year.
10: Today, live...
3: Leandro says with globalization, it is difficult to know where our clothes or the food we eat comes from. The tendency is for more products to sell internationally in the future, but what we choose to buy is up to us. As the world grows increasingly connected and regional cuisines become part of the global trends, it's important to understand the ramifications and what it entails.
4: Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Isaac Furman, Chapin Montague, Amanda Sula, Sarah Mathis, and Ellie Katz. Meet and 3 is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Hannah Forden. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet & 3 is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council. Meet & 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet & 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.